My name's Jack, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Here by the grace of God and Visa. <laughs> and you three people that got your big book, let me tell you, not everybody gets a standing ovation their first goddamn meeting. <laughs> I, uh, first of all, want to thank the committee for uh, inviting me and uh, Donna and uh, great hospitality and uh, Jimmy and Erla for putting up with me for a couple of days. I used to drink with Jimmy but then somebody had to. You know and I kind of really felt at home because I was born and raised in Manitoba when I come here tonight, and it's a great screw-up between Chinese food, Santa Claus, <laughs> Tories, and drunks. You know, it's like a Saturday night in the Verdant Legion. But it's, uh, being sober is great fun. Uh, being alive is great fun. And it didn't used to be. And uh, so tonight I'm just going to... I used to give AA talks, and uh, the problem with that is that, you know, when you're blessed with a little sobriety, uh, people come and ask you advice, and in itself, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that when you're blessed with a little bit of sobriety, some of us think we can give it. And so I found myself, I was giving talks and really telling people how they should work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wasn't. So tonight, I don't give talks anymore. I just share that this is where I am tonight. Now, I may talk to you or say something tonight and talk to you again tomorrow and uh, say something totally opposite, but you people are so kind because you don't say, well, last night he obviously didn't know what the hell he was talking about. You look at each other and you got that kind little smile that you all have that drives some of us absolutely crazy and say, oh, that's growth. And I've done a lot of growing in this program and I'll likely do a little more tonight. I uh, have a problem sometimes when I share and that despite my best efforts, some gratitude sneaks out once in a while. And I don't know about you people, but my gratitude sometimes comes out in the shape, form of Water, here. If it does and it bothers you, I'm happy. Because <laughs> you see, it used to bother me. Now it doesn't bother me anymore. But my story is really no different than anybody else's in the rooms, and that uh, is the common thread that we need to survive. When I saw my first drunk, somebody that had puked all down the front of their shirt and you could see what they'd eaten for the past week and gone to the washrooms without taking their pants down, I didn't think, you know, if I play my cards right, someday I can be like that. <laughs> that is not what I had in store for me. And as Jimmy says, I uh, grew up in Brandon. It's where I first drank. 
a New Year's Eve, four of us got a dozen beer, that's three each. One of the guys got six, so I had two of his. Just pattern of life. There was 12, equally split, I got five. We went to a midnight movie. I got in a fight in the lobby. Got sick in the hallway. Went to this movie and the show was the greatest outdoor show on earth. And to this day, the only thing I can remember is the train wreck. So I had a blackout, too, all the very first time that I ever tasted alcohol. And I didn't know that that was a sign of things to come. I thought from that instant on, I was a social drinker. I thought everybody drank like that. And that's the way that I went through my teen years. You know, I was a pretty good pool player, Brandon, the whole pool room on 10th Street. And the boys would take a collection Fridays and send me down there to Friday afternoon, play pool, play blue ball, make enough money to buy beer that night. And so, obviously, if I wasn't that good a pool player, wouldn't have bought the beer, wouldn't be a drunk today. See how it works? <laughs> and that lasted for about a year and a half until the school principal and my mother figured out that I really didn't have a job at the grocery store. <laughs> but when I was about 15 or 16, I was uh, a playground supervisor for the Brandon YMCA. And one Saturday morning, I uh, was supposed to go to work down at the playground, and I got up, and it was raining. Not hard, but it was raining. And uh, I didn't go. Not because of the rain so much, but I had a headache. I didn't feel too good. I was hungover. And about noon, I got a phone call that an eight-year-old kid had gone out of the playground that morning. And it was closed and there was nobody there and he went swimming in the river and he drowned. And at that instant, I knew that if I hadn't have been drinking that Friday night, the chances were I would have been at the playground. It wasn't raining that hard. I would have been there and chances are that kid might not have drowned. And that's an awful thing for a kid 15 or 16 years old to pack around. But by supper time, I'd made the other discovery that I needed to be an alcoholic. See, by supper time, I had convinced myself it wasn't my fault. Stupid kids, we told them not to swim in the river, and it was raining. Who the hell would go to a playground on a rainy day? And I had allowed, found my rationalizing mind that let me live comfortably with my problem. And I was well on the way, and I didn't know it. And it wasn't all bad. You know, I uh, worked at CKX TV in Brandon. One of my jobs was I was a photographer, and I would go out and take movies of these various events. And I went out to Verdon one time for the fair, and they have the harness races. And uh, I had an uncle that was racing horses in those days, and he liked his beer, so he was my favorite relative. And so after the races, we get into the beer. And we run out. So I jump in the car and I go down and go, buy another box of beer and come back and park in the track by the barns. And we get our head in a pail. In the middle of the night, we bid each other fond farewell and he jumps in his truck to drive to the farm and I jump in the car to drive back to Brandon. And I'm driving for a while and I'm getting tired and I keep driving and getting more tired. Finally, I can drive no further and I pull over and I to the side kind of and I stop and I sleep. And I wake up and I'll be surprised if I'm the only one in this room that's experienced this. I'm dying of thirst and I didn't save one bloody beer. The sun's coming in. I'm just dying. 
And I sit up in the car, and I was about 20 feet from where I'd started. I'd driven all night around the track. <laughs> and it never occurred to me the turns were all the same way, you know. <laughs> but I went through my teen years and went through life knowing deep down inside where I live that I drank differently than everybody else. I knew there was something wrong. I knew that I wasn't right. And it scared me. But I had nobody to talk to. Who do you tell when you're a teenager? Your buds? Your teenagers? I might have a drinking problem. No, of course not. You keep it inside. You don't tell anybody. And of course I got fired from jobs, and rightfully so, from CKX and so on. And I took the geographic cure because I made the discovery of what was really, really wrong with Brandon. It was a horseshit town. <laughs> I mean, you lived in Brandon, you'd drink too. I mean, I understand that's still true. No, just. <laughs> so I took the geographic cure and went to Kamloops, BC, and got off the train drunk. It didn't last all that long. I needed to the job, of course, because I got fired from that. But the drinking progressed. And I would uh, leave the house and married with two boys at that time, and I would leave the house to go down to the pub for a beer. One beer, maybe two. And two weeks later come two, and I would be in Skid Row, Vancouver. No idea how I got there. No idea at all. And I lived down there for a while. And that's not the nicest place in the world to live either. You know, good people there, of course, but uh, you never see it in the tourist brochures that, you know, visit Pigeon Park. But I did. And it's one of these things that, you know, you're never proud of these things so much as that, man, it's part of the gratitude that I don't have to live like that anymore. You know, my biggest challenge was dry cardboard to sleep under. You know the most valuable thing you got when you're on the skids are your boots. If you got good boots, you're laughing. You get drunk, fall asleep, pass out, wake up, somebody stole your goddamn boots. So you'd have to buy boots. I think I bought the same pair about 30 times. But that's just the way that things were. And again, I didn't know how to get out of the mess. I didn't know how to get off the bandwagon. I didn't know how to stop what was going on with me. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't have anybody I could share this with. You know, in all the things I've ever done in AA, one of the best things I ever did was sober not all that long, and I went to a roundup in Seattle and I heard the best description of alcoholism that I've ever heard to this day by a teenager, a kid in Alateen that called it the lonely illness. And man, is that so true. And what a difference it is in our lives, eh? You know, when we're drinking, we can be in a room of thousands and be lonely, and when we're sober, we can be by ourselves and not be. But I continued on, and the skids in Vancouver, and didn't really know quite what to do. And for Christmas 1965, my wife decided that 
you know, they should get me home off the skids back to Kamloops for Christmas. Kind of shine me up and get through the festive season. And a neighbor came down to find me. And now I don't know what kind of a life you lead, but when I saw my neighbor, I thought, you know, what the hell is he doing down here? You know, it never occurred to me that he was looking for me. So he found me and uh, said, get in the car, I want to talk to you. And I said, no, I'm not going to go anywhere. I really didn't like him anyway. So away he went and he came back and he had two bottles of whiskey in the back of his car and he said, come on, let's go for a drive. And I thought, well, you know, he wasn't that bad a guy. So I got in the car <clears throat> and got into the whiskey and came to uh, on a couch in my house in Kamloops. And he knew what he was doing and he got me home and we got through that Christmas. And it wasn't that bad. And then I thought, you know, if I don't do something, I'm going to die. And if anybody could have assured me that it would have been fairly quick and fairly painless, I'd have gone back. But I just knew it would be slow, and it would be messy, and I'm not into pain. And I thought, I'm going to go, maybe I'll go to an AA meeting. But I didn't dare tell anybody. And I was kind of working a little bit for the CPR at that time, and my boss that Tuesday afternoon called me in and said, you got a drinking problem. He said, there's a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous tonight. If you're not at it, you're out of work tomorrow morning. Now, I had all sorts of people telling me how to do something about my problem, but nobody had ever put it in language that I understood before. <laughs> so in January of 1966, I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Kamloops at 8 o'clock at night. Now, in Kamloops, in January, in the first week of January, it's as black as the inside of a cow. But I don't want anybody to see me going to an AA meeting. You know, I was puking in front of Safeway Saturday afternoon, but I don't want anybody to see me getting sober. <laughs> you know, there'd be a car eight blocks away, and I'd just stand there by the tree until it went by so I could dart into this meeting. But finally the coast was clear and I jumped into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> and I'd love to tell you that the skies parted and God came down and sat beside me and paid the collection and all this stuff. None of that happened. A guy came over to me and said, you know my son, it's a sickness. And I thought, here I am, a brain surgeon. I had never been so sick in my life, and this guy picked that off. Now, isn't he brilliant, you know? Well, good for you. i got some problems here, I can see. But I sat through the meeting, and they told me that they would be meeting again the following Tuesday. So, God, I didn't drink all that week, and I went to the meeting the following Tuesday, and the next meeting. And then I, the light went on. 12-step program, first meeting was first step, then it was the same, it's a 12-week course. <laughs> and once I could see through that, it all made sense to me, of course, you know. And I thought you people kind of handled it a little funny, but still, 
you know, I like organization. In 12 weeks, I could, I could spare that. And so that's how I treated the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for 12 weeks, I didn't drink. And the 12th night, I could hardly wait to get to the meeting. Man, I was graduating. This is it. I'm done. And up to the meeting I go, and halfway through the Lord's Prayer at the end, man, I'm out of there, and I'm down to the Mallard Room at the Leland Hotel in beautiful downtown Kamloops, and I walk in and order a drink. Now, suicide to me would have been delightful if I could have figured out how to drown in a vat of gin and tonic. And I ordered a gin and tonic, and I had one, and I left. I was cured. I had become a social drinker. I hadn't been able to go in and have one for many, many years. And I had one that was all I could do <coughs> to keep from stopping people on the street and saying, listen, if you've got a drinking problem, go to these people. It's only an hour a week. It costs a buck. No big deal. <laughs> you know, and they're going to talk about stuff. And some of them will talk about God, but don't pay any attention to that. Take a good look at them. They should. But you don't have to worry about it. And you can be like me, a social drinker. And of course, within a few days it happened and I got drunk when I didn't intend to and stayed drunk longer than I wanted to. But the 12 weeks was not lost on me because I learned some things in this program. Because after about three weeks of that, I was in jail. And I learned in the program the value of sponsorship. I learned that, you know, if you get the right kind of sponsor, you can get tailor-made cigarettes. <laughs> they might buy uh, the odd meal. You can sometimes even borrow money from them. <laughs> so I phoned this guy, my sponsor. And uh, I said, and those are the days you're allowed one phone call. And I said, uh, I'm in jail. Uh, he said, I'm not. <laughs> I thought, oops. <laughs> he said, have you been drinking? I said, well, yeah, a little. He said, do you think your drinking has anything to do with you being in jail? I said, well, I hadn't really thought about that. Well, he says, I suggest you do because I ain't going to see you till tomorrow. And he hung up <laughs> and left me in jail overnight. And the truth of it is likely saved my life. And he is still my sponsor. And I got out of jail that time. And about two weeks after that, and I was coming off a drunk on a Sunday, or a Saturday and a Sunday I woke up, and I used to be terrible, terrible sick after I came off a drunk. And this Sunday I had not even a hint of a headache. I felt great. Couldn't believe it. I'd been drunk for a week. And I didn't know what was going on. But sometime during that night, and I can see it now as if it happened last night, but sometime during that night it was as if I had a vision, a dream, whatever you want to call it, but it was with about a four-inch paintbrush and black paint and two letters, A.A., and I woke up to Monday morning and told my wife that I'm going to give AA another chance, you know, the generosity and kindness of us drunks, you know. 
And she gently pointed out that uh, while there was no meetings in Kamloops on the Monday, I said, something will happen. And it wasn't half an hour later, the phone rang. And it was a guy, and I don't mind using his name because he was a success in this program and that he died sober. But Tom Shields, and he was the one guy that I did not like in my 12-week course. And we all have those kind of guys or gals in this program. When we come to meetings, there's somebody in that room that reads us like a book and we know it. And so what do we do? We ignore them. We don't want anything to do with them and we try to avoid them, of course. And that was Tom Shields. And he said, we're starting a new group of Alcoholics Anonymous tonight for the new meeting. Would you like to go to a meeting? I said, yes, I would. And he picked me up. And he picked me up every Monday for a year. But that first Monday he picked me up was the 4th of June of 1966. And through you people and my program and my God as I understand them, I haven't had the need of a drink or a mood-changing drug since that day. See, I told you the gratitude would sneak out. And I went back to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was amazing how much you people had changed. <laughs> you see, during my 12-week course, I would sit at AA meetings, and you people would say you did this, and I would say, I didn't do that, so therefore I'm not what I am. No wonder I was screwed up. But since that time, all anybody has to do is say their name, they're an alcoholic, and there's instant identification, and it's deep. That's all I need, and we're one and the same. And I did what we have to do in this program, and I made coffee, and I set up chairs, and I emptied the ashtrays, and I did all that stuff because I was told to. And I went to a roundup in Seattle, Washington, where I heard that kid. And it was an amazing experience. And I heard my first circuit speaker, and I was hooked. Here I am, a terminal people pleaser, and look at the attention that guy got. Man! So, being the type of person I am, I didn't care about his program. I just loved the popularity. I'm going to be a circuit speaker. And so that's what I did. And I yapped and talked and traveled and did all this neat stuff all over the Okanagan and down into Washington, and I was just, oh, I had a hell of a story. It's a pity some of you didn't hear it. <laughs> and one night I was speaking in Vernon. And the problem was, or one of my problems, was that my sponsor had never heard me speak. And, you know, he just never had the chance to appreciate what he helped create. So we went to Vernon, and we're coming back, and he's driving me absolutely crazy, going back to Kamloops. He hasn't said a word. Now, if you get a good sponsor, you will get one that loves you enough to be honest with you. And I got the best sponsor in the world. <laughs> I said, well, what did you think of my talk? And he took the next four hours to tell me. 
And we ended up in his living room in the middle of the night with a cup of, pot of coffee on the big book and one of the best meetings that I've ever been at in my life and saved my life. And when I made that return to Alcoholics Anonymous on, uh, I think it was the Monday I went to the meeting, Friday I get the phone call. What are you doing? Well, nothing. I was the only one in the group. We had about eight guys and eight cow loops at that time, and I was the only one not working. They knew very well I wasn't doing anything. There's a guy, the Canadian, in his phone. He wants some help. Well, what do I do? Well, first of all, you get the big book, and you read about the 12th step. Okay, here I am, five days sober. Then you take the big book, and you tuck it under your arm, and you go down and see this guy. And you tell him about our program, and you don't drink. Okay. Now, that was from my sponsor. Keep in mind that my sponsor was an iron worker. Big, tough, tough guy, and I knew how this program worked, that if I didn't do it, my sponsor told me he'd beat me up. <laughs> so there I go down, and I walk into the Canadian in this hotel room, and this guy's sitting on the edge of his bed, and he's got a decent-sized stack of money sitting on the bureau and two or three bottles of better whiskey than I've been buying lately. Tailor-made cigarettes pretty good-looking gal sitting beside him on the bed, and I have the instant thoughts of a drunk. I could slap him silly, take the whiskey, take the money. He could keep the girl she likely drank. And I'm sitting there thinking, why is this guy phoning? You know, in a times like that, we got to be such great salespeople. You know, I'm sitting there with a the knee sticking out of my, own, my blue jeans, rolling my own cigarettes. If you want what we have, you know... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're willing to go to any length to be like me, kind of. But it worked. It was a great 12 step. I have no idea what happened to him, but I didn't drink that day. And I have never, ever had a failure as a 12 step. Some of them have brought huge bonuses, but never a failure. But this was my program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, well, I'll learn this program. Well, that was over 40 years ago, and I haven't learned it yet. It's an ongoing process, isn't it? And man, what a way to live. You know, and after that trip back, when my sponsor told me exactly what he thought of my talk, he was dead right. I was talking the talk, and I wasn't walking the walk. I had to phone two or three places and say, I'm sorry, but I cannot come to your roundup because I haven't been living this program. I've been talking it and been traveling it and been doing all this stuff. But I haven't been living the program. And so I went back to do what I had to do and, you know, setting up the chairs and making the coffee. And I was about six or seven years sober at that time. And then I went through a phase of my sobriety, and I only tell you this because it's part of my story that I didn't need AA. You see, I'd become quite successful. And I bought into the rationalization that, well, you know, I know lots of drunks. I know where they work. You know, I can go for coffee with them. Coffee is not an AA meeting. This is an AA meeting. And this is where we belong. But I went about seven or eight years 
maybe more, didn't go to half a dozen meetings. I had no idea how close I was to drinking and just screwing everything up until I got back active in the program again, and I got sucked in for that. A guy came to me in Cochrane one day and said, uh, you know Bill W., and I'm thinking, well, yeah. He said, well, we're mutual friends. I said, really? I didn't know he was in the program. He says, yeah, there's a guy going to have his 30th birthday on Friday. You should go to that meeting. And for some reason I said, well, you know, maybe I will. 30 years is a long time. And this was maybe 30 years ago. And so I went to the meeting that Friday night, and all of a sudden it all made sense to me again. And I knew what I was missing. But it was his birthday, and he sucked me in, but I was there. And once again... I set up chairs and I made coffee and I did all the things that I had to do to save my life. And life is not without its challenges. You know, one of the things that always amazes me when I go to these roundups is you hear these speakers and just incredible stories and incredible communicators and I just sit there and it just blows my mind and I think, geez, I wish I could talk like that, hey? And the thing is that we all can because we all got our, our stories to share. And this is what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. I go to quite a few meetings now. In 42 years, this may come as a surprise, but I haven't gotten smarter. <laughs> I've just got older. And sometimes we think it goes hand in hand, and that ain't true necessarily, you know. But I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm a golf nut. I love the game. And by tradition, the U.S. Open ends on Father's Day every year down in the States, and it's a great golf tournament. And about three years ago, my two sons, who used to hide under the bed when I would come home drunk, not knowing what mood I would be in. And my two sons took me down to the U.S. Open for a Father's Day present. And what an experience that was. And you have no idea how many times that I would go on little walks by myself because of the gratitude just overwhelming me out there with these kids of mine. And I am be forever grateful that they do not bear resentments towards their old man because they're both about six foot five. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with the program, it's uh, survival. <laughs> but what is this program that we have? You know, alcohol got us here, but it doesn't keep us here. You know, I spent a good portion of my life trying to figure out why I was an alcoholic. What's the magic words that I need to find so that it will explain this to me? And what do I have to do so I won't be one anymore or I can explain it and justify all the things that I have done? Why am I an alcoholic? And I found out why I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because I'm me. And it's that simple. That's why I'm an alcoholic. And my program and my God and you people allow me to live comfortably with me, one day at a time, and all I have to do is completely give myself to this simple program. You know, and I'm one who believes that there's 
truly as many miracles in the program of Al-Anon as there is in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I've been told that, uh, you know, what would we do, us guys in AA, if we ever found out God was a woman <laughs> in Al-Anon? <laughs> but I've been told, you see, that Al-Anon is a program who, for people who live with alcoholics. I live with one 24-7. I need your program. I don't understand your program. I don't understand me, and I don't understand my program. But I'm the kind of person that if I did, I'd screw it up. I accept it. You know, there's so many, many things that, you know, you want to, you get an opportunity like this, and you want to share everything, and you get talking too much and thinking too much, and too much is going on, and there isn't a speaker in the world that you don't kind of rehearse this a little bit in your mind before you get up here to do it, and I want to say this, and I want to say that, and, you know, last night I gave a hell of a talk. It's a pity it wasn't this one. You know, in laying in bed, I had a hell of a, a couple of standing ovations I gave myself were a bit of a nuisance, but... You know, and the attitude is so important. You know, they tell a story about a young couple just got married. And they check into the bridal suite. And the groom takes off his trousers and tosses them to his new bride and says, put these on. She said, don't be silly. He said, put them on. Only hours ago, you promised. She says, oh, okay. So she goes, puts them on, pulls them up and says, I can't wear these. These are much too big for me. He said, you're right, and don't you forget it. <laughs> now, those of you who have jumped to the conclusion the joke is over, <laughs> this young bride had some Al-Anon training. She takes her wee briefs off and tosses them to him and says, put these on. He said, don't be daft. She says, only hours ago, you too. And he says, oh, okay. So he's trying to get these little briefs on, and they're binding around his ankles, and he says, I can't get into these. And she says, no, and you won't until your attitude changes. <laughs> but what is this program that we have? You know, it's a sanctuary for all of us when we first come. But hopefully, I, I think it's important that we grow out of that. You know, my program of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a haven to retreat to anymore. It's a base to work from. There is so much, so much good we can do in this whole world of ours by practicing these principles in all our affairs. We can do this stuff. We see it. It goes on all the time around us, you know. And we worry about rejection. It's a natural thing. It's a natural human thing. You know, my father died in Deer Lodge Hospital. And I was in Calgary, and he was very ill. And about once or twice a month, I would fly down the midnight run from Calgary and stop at Regina or Saskatoon into Winnipeg, go to the hospital, and they got to know me, and I would just check in and go right to his room and see how he was doing. And one particular night I did, and my father suffered many problems and was in the prenatal position all curled up, and this one night I went in and he was wide awake and lucid, and we talked. 
And we talked for about an hour and a half about all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I never ever told my father that I loved him. And we were never really that close, but I still loved the guy. But I never told him, and I didn't tell him that night, you see, because I was afraid of the rejection. What if he said I didn't care? So I thought, well, my rationalizing mind is even better sober sometimes. I thought, well, on my way back to Calgary tomorrow, early in the morning, I will pop in and tell him. And I did pop in on the way back to Calgary early the next morning, and he was curled up once again, and I never ever saw him alive. We've got to run the risk of telling people we love them when they're living. We've got to run the risk of being hurt. You know, some people think when you're sober for a little while, you don't hurt anymore. It's maybe even tougher when you've been sober for a little while to hurt and. Because here you are, how can you go and say, I need help, when you go to a meeting and some young kid's chairing the meeting, and you're going to, you've been sober for 20 years or 2 years or 14 years or 40 years. You give advice, you don't seek it. That attitude kills us, far too many of us. You can hurt, it doesn't matter how long you've been in this program. And the ego we have kills far too many of us. You know, when they talk about the ego of a drunk, Paddy, an Irishman, had a terrible, terrible drinking problem. He'd come home every night, drunk, crawling hands and knees up onto the Chesterfield and pass out. His good wife had no idea what to do with him. Then she had this inspiration. See, they lived right beside a great, huge graveyard. Got some friends, and they dug a regulation grave. Paddy came home drunk, same thing, crossed the floor onto the Chesterfield, passed out. Calls the neighbors. They pick Paddy up, take him, and they lower him down into this grave in the middle of the graveyard. Next morning, Paddy awakens. And slowly he rises in the clammy sides of that grave, and he looks up, and all he sees all around him are the tombstones. And this is the ego of us drunks. And he says, my God, it's the resurrection, and I'm the first one up. <laughs> but we have the program. We have to find the courage to share our feelings. You know, I wasn't in the program all that long, and my sponsors, one night, and I knew this was coming, and he said, uh, have you prayed yet? I don't know, shit, how do I get around this? You know, and it was a problem for me, you see, because I've spent my entire life writing. I'm a man of words. God would be waiting for my prayer. Never tried one before in my life. So I just knew that he was sitting up there. I can hardly wait for this one. <laughs> you know, I mean, you people may fumble around with prayer stuff and the words and whatnot, but I could handle it. So I said, well, you know, I've been, been thinking about that. And uh, my wife and two kids and I were at his place, and he said, well, instead of thinking about it, do something about it. I'm going to take you home, just you. So I thought, well, okay, you know, because I didn't want to get beat up. <laughs> and I go into the house, and I said, well, you know, you don't want to ask somebody how do you pray. I mean, you're supposed to know these things. So I thought, well, what do I do? So 
the first thing, and you'll identify with this, you know, if I'm going to get on my knees and pray, I close the drapes. You know, they say that you can test your faith and your, your trust and your belief in your higher power if you pray on your knees with the light on with a damn good chance of getting caught. So, of course, I turn the lights out. Make sure that, and get the drapes closed and whatnot. That's a familiar sound on a Saturday night now, isn't it? And I uh, get on my knees in this, I think it was our $60 Chesterfield suite that we were doing so well at the time, and this prayer, and I had no idea. And I was completely overcome with gratitude. It was just an amazing experience. The tears were just flowing down. And I was completely out of control, and you didn't feel the least bit out of control. I didn't know about this program, and I didn't understand it, but I knew somehow it was good. And I didn't know about you people, and I didn't know who you were, but somehow I knew that I was safe with you, you know. And I didn't know about this God business, and that was too much for me, but somehow I knew that if I did what you told me to do and turn my will and my life over to this God, that it would be good for me. And I didn't understand any of that. But somehow I knew that this is where I belonged. And I had come home. And I can stand here tonight with the same amount of gratitude I had that time and that prayer was one lousy, stinking word, and I haven't said very much ever since then. But I can mean it tonight as much as I meant it 40 years ago. Thanks. And th